Welcome to Modern Practice. Today, we're going deeper into the story on how a team in Sanford Health made huge strides in reducing PSIs to improve care. I'm your host, Dr. Tomas Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations and Quality at Vizian and Practicing Internist. Joining me again is Dr. Dev Manuro, Rachel Lake, and Dr. Khalid Siraki. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. So if I hear a best practice from all three of you is that you are basing our stakeholders on a continuous basis. And we've spoken many times in our podcast from the book Speed to Trust. It's based on consistency, competency, and character. And you're being consistent on how you're basing your clinicians and actually giving education on a non-punitive way. And I'd love to go back into it. And so we've spoken on several episodes about how impressed I've been that how you're not only educating, but actually giving feedback back in a non-punitive way. And you did this by having PSI's notification letters and conversations. Can you tell us a little bit more how you accomplished this? Because I think this would be a value for many of our listeners. Absolutely, John. Non-punitive PSI letter notification process and conversations is a strategy to enhance education, understanding of PSI's, promote collaboration among clinicians, and support sustainment of this work. Our sister organization in Bismarck had rolled out a process of letter notification. In May 2021, we reviewed the concept. We also reviewed the existing letter template and workflow processes. We reached out to the Office of Professional Practice and confirmed that the PSI letters would not be included against clinicians and act as an educational means alone. Subsequently, we agreed upon an SBAR template, and I let Rachel speak to the details of the template, and we can proceed further. Yeah, so I'll start by just saying that the case details are summarized in a very concise manner. It's kind of a need-to-know-only basis. Some of these patients have length of stays greater than 30 days, and there's a lot that goes on. So we really just keep the information objective and relevant to that PSI. So in the S section of the SBAR, we talk about the indicator that was observed or that occurred in that certain case. The background, just any kind of contributing information, maybe some pertinent history, things like that. With the assessment section, what we found based on our chart review. And then finally in the R section, any areas of opportunities. And oftentimes there aren't some. And so we just use that opportunity to reiterate that this is for their professional learning and development and take the time to thank them for their care and expertise with the patient. We also use a cover letter addressed to the provider, giving them a brief explanation of that PSI-90 composite. Really the intent of the letter is being non-punitive and just really making sure that they know that this is not involved in peer review. This is not part of their permanent record. This is absolutely just for their professional growth and learning about CMS and AHRQ. And then finally, prior to send out, we always make sure that I have a cross check from my physician advisors for content and verbiage, just to make sure everything is streamlined before we send them out. How about your perspective, Casey? So usually my input on the discussion is to render a surgical opinion as the physician advisor on whether a PSI occurred or not and whether it's preventable, and then assist in the content of the letter that's being sent to the surgeon, bearing in mind that we have no intention but just to be informative. For example, a colonoscopy was done on the way back. They saw some mucosal hemorrhage with no perforation, no bleeding, just the mucosal inflammation, for example. I can inform Rachel that this is not a PSI. This is usually very common on the way back from while doing endoscopy, and no further action is needed. This is just an example I'm giving. So this is my involvement in this process. Out of curiosity, is there an escalation process if you still see a certain behavior by a clinician? Honestly, since we have reviewed this, the majority of the time, and I say majority of them because I never say 100, the majority of the time, these cases have been already discussed in peer review if there was harm detected or there was some process of improvement that has been detected. 
So many times Rachel will send me a case and we're discussing a case and I tell her, oh, this has already been discussed in peer review. And we just focus on the PSI aspect of it and the non-punitive letter aspect of it. I don't recall ever having to escalate any case because, as I said, the majority have been already discussed in peer review where there is a need to be discussed. And if there's been a deviation in clinical practice, what we have done is we have forwarded the case to the clinical practice department and they would review it and we would not be sending a letter for that case to that clinician from our side. That's a very good point to remember. So you're not doubling up on the information. Yeah, because my role as a surgical quality officer is also the peer review overseeing all the surgical departments. So I'm aware of all these cases, all these complications. So when I meet with Rachel, I'm just focusing on the PSI aspect. That's amazing. And again, I could not overemphasize how important I think that that would be considered best practice. So I already discussed about the many silos that currently exist with large healthcare organizations. How did you engage the collaboration between Nesquip, TQIP, and nurse leaders and physicians? I'm fascinated how you did that. Tom, what we started off by doing is we went to learn from them first. So that's very important. See, we did not go as a quality department to share what we want from them. The way we address this is we went to an script team and we said, hey, we'd like to know more about your project and your program and things like that. I spent almost three to four hours with the Nesquip nurse and the physician. And then we got the manual, the instruction manual from Nesquip and shared it with the whole quality team. And the key stakeholders in the quality team reviewed the Nesquip instructions, you know, inclusions, exclusions thoroughly. Then the next thing we did was we offered them assistance to achieve what they are wanting to achieve because ultimately all of these paths at some point merge. So we offered them assistance. And the third thing is we said, can you add a little bit more when you go to the clinicians to support this additional work? So that's how we kind of got the buy-in from all of these departments. Yeah, I can add to that. So as Dev mentioned, there's a lot of overlap, but I think coming in humbly and learning what their measures are and how they're decided was the first step. And so what we did kind of further then is make a Venn diagram to really show what measures involved in the PSI-90 composite are measures that they're already working on through NISQIP or TQIP. And we found that there was at least 50% overlap that they're already working on. So making it known that this hopefully is not an extra added task that we're taking on. It's just, we've got a similar target, but kind of two different ways of getting there was part of it. And then I think in addition, making sure that we're reporting out in tangent. So when NISQIP comes and does a quarterly report out, we do a PSI report out and can kind of note similarities there. It was also helpful to take the time to look into their manual and then obviously be subject matter experts on our manuals or our specifications so that we could speak to this is why this one's going to count for a post-op sepsis case for us. But that very same case won't count for a NISQIP measure for you. And so having that understanding was really helpful. From there, we were able to take on some targeted work with our trauma and our orthopedic service lines for DVT and PE prevention. And similarly, are looking specifically at our cardiothoracic surgical population in relation to renal optimization and avoiding that patient progressing to a post-op dialysis. From the surgical point of view, it's essential first to identify the key individuals and department that should be involved in any collaboration. So this usually includes surgeons, nurses, anesthetists, administrators, quality improvement specialists, that analysts. Sometimes we involve speech therapists also. Then we involve the clinical champions who are respected within their respective fields. 
So these individuals can help motivate their peers to participate in any collaboration. An example of this, recently we're working on a nasogastric tube removal aspiration prevention protocol in surgical patients, and we're involving clinical champions from the surgical team and from the hospitalist team in the decision-making process. And then we plan on sharing the data and outcomes after this is accomplished with all the stakeholders. So this is not like a one-man show anymore. This is a collaboration among multiple teams on multiple levels. Excellent. Everyone, great podcast. Next week, we'll talk about your results. And to our listeners, you can contact the Tamford team at their email addresses in the research section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email at modernpracticepodcast at vizianinc.com. We've also posted a link in our research section as well. And please join us for other modern practice podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. I'm Dr. Tomas Villanueva. Thank you so much for listening. 